Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Peter God. Thanks be to God indeed. Now this topic, of course, is one that brings up lots of feelings amongst people. Some of you are excited that we are doing this series on race, I'm sure. Some of you are tired of talking about race, tired and annoyed that we're doing this service. Some of you are frustrated, uh, probably wish we weren't doing this series. So I'm going to ask us all as we do this six-week series on race that we approach the text and we approach each other when we approach the series with Holy Spirit humbleness, that we come prayerfully and in submission to listen to what the Lord has got to say to us. Now, this is a small church, and I have lunched with many of you, woodworked with many of you, barbecued, hung out as families with many of you, and I really appreciate the fact that as a small church, you guys give lots of insight, feedback, and discussion, and as we've talked about this upcoming service, you've brought up many reasons why this is a troubling topic for us to preach on. And one of them is, it's too controversial and divisive. Why this and not other hot button issues? Now, we can't avoid it just because it's controversial or even political. We have to rise above this. We can't and haven't avoided difficult topics in the past. If you've been to any of our membership classes, if you've done education with us or listened to previous sermon series, you've heard, heard us talk about immigration and gender, abortion, divorce, sex, and politics. We don't run away from the difficult topics. In fact, it is a mark of family that we can deal with divisive topics 
in ways that refine, that conflict refines us rather than divides or splits us. Others of you have thought perhaps we're doing this because it's a hot button cultural issue right now. And you know what? That's partly true. That is actually partly true. But the fact that it is topical, that it's part of what's going on in our culture, is a reason for us to engage in it. It's the in but not of equipping process. Being in the world but not of the world. Engaging biblically in the culture and what is going on in the culture now. It is our job in the church to equip you to be a witness and to bring the biblical framework that we get from our Lord Jesus Christ into the context of the culture that you live in. So in a sense, yes, that's partly true. But if you've got the handout in your bulletin, you'll see that it's more than that. Perhaps it's an indictment that we haven't dealt with this issue just as an issue of judgment, uh, of justice before. Others have said, no, I get that systemic racism is historical. You know, it's, there was slavery, there's Jim Crow, the, the segregation laws. And, and I agree that there's a history of systemic racism, but I don't know about now. And I just wanted to show you this quick slide, which I pulled out some statistics. And this is a comparison, simply the white and black experience in this country. Blacks have 54% home ownership, 250% more likely to be shot by a policeman. Their sentences are 20% longer than whites for the same crime. They have 10% on it, statistically, of the wealth of whites. There's a 300 uh, times, or a three times, sorry, 300%, or three times more likely that a black woman will die in childbirth than a white woman in this country. And blacks do get a, a test scores that are about 90% of whites in this country. Now, these statistics are not universal, but in each of these six areas, which sociologists say create an experience define your experience as you grow up and live in a country, blacks fall way behind whites. And so what does that mean? Well, let's talk about what the system that creates this experience uh, and the reaction that, that comes from that. First of all, these statistics indicate that the systemic problems exist in the culture we live in. This is the reality on the ground now, statistically, and so it is impacting the experience, statistically, of people who are black. What these statistics don't mean is that every black person's experience is the same, that there are not successful blacks, that there are not blacks who do, do well, or, or that we should treat everybody who's black with a lens that they've somehow been limited by the context they grew up in. It doesn't mean that individual black or white people are not responsible for the choices they make. No matter how much oppression Jesus uh, was on the receiving end of, at no time did he shirk his responsibility uh, individually for how he behaved and what he did. It also doesn't mean that the systems are all bad and that they need to be abolished, that we need to throw out our housing policy, our law courts, our police forces, our uh, financial systems, our healthcare systems, or our education systems. It doesn't mean that the systems are all bad. It means that they 
uh, have systemic problems and need to be addressed. And it doesn't mean that white people are all overt racists set out to exploit black people. What these statistics mean is that the problem is systemic but real. And as Christians, we need to respond in submission to Christ. The point of a sermon series on race is to equip us to better be able to represent Christ in our culture, to understand what it means to be faithful and to act redemptively. The systems need fixing. We are part of the system, so we need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So let's jump into the text for today. The text begins with the reading of a question. What does it mean to inherit eternal life? A great question, probably one of the premier questions that all of us want to know the answer to. And the answer that the expert of the law gives is an answer that Jesus likes. He said, you need to love God and love your neighbor. Love, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a really interesting passage when the person comes back and says, well, what's your neighbor? That Jesus, or story that Jesus tells. When you watch a crime uh, drama on TV, the primary protagonists in that story are usually the perpetrator and the victim of the story. A few exceptions to that, probably Schindler's List or some other movies, but in the majority of cases when you see a movie, it's, it's the person perpetrating the injustice and the person receiving the injustice that are the primary protagonists. In this story that Jesus tells, they are not even uh, key characters in the story. They're incidental. This is the story of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, and how they respond when they see someone else perpetrate an injustice on someone else. Jesus' um, story is about the various responses that people have to injustice. And there's a key piece to note here in Jesus' choice of a Samaritan. Samaritans, uh, for those of you who are not necessarily familiar with the historical context here, uh, were a group of people that formed uh, around the Israelites way back when they were building the temple for the second time, and there was a lot of racial tension and strife, and in the end those Samaritans split off and set up a separate temple and formed a mixed race with the other uh, people around them so that they were both uh, racially, culturally, and religiously different, and there was conflict since the time of the establishment of the Second Temple right up to the time of Jesus. Racial, cultural, and religious conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. And we see this when we see the woman at the well, when she says, Jesus, what are you doing coming near me? I'm a Samaritan woman. And then she has that discussion about worship in the temple with Jesus. Now, the expert in the law, if he was telling this story, he would have made the Samaritan the robber. He would have said, clearly it's the Samaritan who beats up on the Jews. Jesus choosing to make the Samaritan the hero of the story is a key point that we need to note. It challenges the idea, first of all, that the law only applies within the context of Jew to Jew, or in our case, church to church. This idea of love your neighbor is a mandate to the whole world, just as in love the Lord your God is a mandate to the creation order. 
So it's important for us not to think that our response to injustice should just be within the church, the church to church, or church person to church person, or Christian to Christian. This is a mandate that applies to the world and our way of engaging in the world. The second thing that Jesus would have evoked in the expert of the law when he used the word Samaritan is the, the nod, in a sense, to the idea that the Samaritan, the non-Jew, is doing a better job than the priest and the Levite. Now, the priest and the Levite, we know, were not responsible for the robbing, but they are responsible for saying, it's not my problem. It's not a parable about responsibility for injustice, but response to injustice. But this would have got up the nose of the expert of the law, who was probably a Levite and a priest himself. The rhetoric, rhetorical level here is high, and you can imagine the tension that he's feeling. The Jericho Road story that we listen to when we read this text is 2,000 years, years old. And we already know what the right response is. And we've been familiar with it since we were a child. We are not Levites or priests accused of ignoring or crossing the road or avoiding. We don't have historical baggage with the Samaritans. This doesn't confront us. We know the right answer. I wonder what the expert of the law did when he heard this. Certainly he knew the right answer when he was asked to identify the neighbor. And Jesus replied to him, go and do likewise. We don't know what the expert did, but that we do know what he was supposed to do. Not nothing. Not cross the road. Not avoid. Not ignore. Now, when it comes to mercy and justice, what does not nothing look like? What does doing not nothing look like? Well, let's jump into this passage a little deeper. The road to Jericho, as you can see on this slide here, a picture of that road, is about 18 miles of desert conditions. It drops from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a long, steep decline. It was at the time a major thoroughfare for caravans and military, for pilgrims to Jerusalem. And when we say it was a major thoroughfare, we mean that in the terms of 2,000 years ago. There wasn't rows and rows of traffic, but there was a lot of traffic. But there was gaps in the traffic and there was opportunities for robbers and bandits to hide out in the cracks of the rocks. And it was actually known as a road that if you walked on, that you had a good chance of getting mugged and robbed on. Ample hiding places and great escape routes into the desert where no one would pursue you. And the road is narrow. Crossing the other side was a matter of feet, as you can see in this, not uh, multi-lane highway. Robberies on the Jericho Road were a systemic problem. People knew about it. It happened all the time, and the listeners knew that. Now, how do we respond to that? Now, my son, McLaren, has said that he wants to get a job. And he's been saying that for a few months. And he came to me about a month ago and said, Dad, I really want to get a job after saying that for a couple of months. And I said, I know what you should do, Dad. You should get, uh, McLaren, you should go outside into the yard and you should hold your hands out like this 
and maybe God will drop a job into your hands. Now, much to my unawareness, and I apologize to McLaren in advance for this, he'd been doing a lot of work in the background, talking to his friends, working out where there was an opportunity to get jobs, and has found plenty of opportunities to come back since my rather sarcastic and insensitive comment to prove to me that he is working hard and in fact looks like he will have a job. But that idea of walking out and putting your hands up to the sky is sometimes what we think calling should be like. What are we supposed to do? Now, calling really is finding the good works God has for us. It requires prayer and it requires the vertical habits that we looked at in the previous series and horizontal habits, interacting with people, asking what are my gifts, what are my needs, what are my desires, what are the needs I see around me, what are the desires, and finding the intersection of those things. So prayer and the intersection of gifting and needs and desires. And in this sense, I'll be honest with you, the Good Samaritan was not called by God to do this good work. It's not like he sat there before he went on this walk and said, hmm, what am I, what am I gifting? What is my desire? What are the needs? I know, I'll walk on the road to Jericho and hopefully I will find someone who has been mugged. That's my calling. That's not at all what happens here. In a sense, this act of justice and mercy fell literally out of the sky in front of the Good Samaritan and he had to engage in a way that was not in accordance with his understanding of his calling. Perhaps he was going to Jericho for a conference. Who knows why he's going to Jericho? The good work was an inconvenience. It cost him time and it cost him money. If we read the passage, we can see, as he traveled, he came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity upon him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you with any extra expense you have. Time and money and inconvenience, not for a calling that was planned, not for a calling that was worked out by gifting, by needs and desire, not that a call was even worked out with prayer and horizontal and vertical habits. It fell out of the sky right in front of him. And that's often how it is with issues of justice and mercy for us. Now, there are lots of different ways to respond to a call. Let's use this parable as an example. The expert of the law who was listening to this passage, he may have felt convicted by the Holy Spirit. He might have said, you know what? I have a sense, listening to you, Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you're convicting me that this is a problem. This road to Jericho problem is, um, is something that needs to be addressed. I feel that I have gifting for law enforcement and I see the need and I have a desire to work on the road to Jericho. And he could have gone away and trained and set out with a sense of calling to address the systemic problem that exists on the road to Jericho. That would have been, in a sense, a professional calling, one that was worked out as a good work that was done faithfully using vertical and horizontal habits and using the intersection of gifting and needs and desire. A third thing that my, a second thing that he might have done was 
he might have advocated for political change. Uh, he may have decided that it was a good idea to start a petition amongst the Jews who regularly walked, worked on that road and take it to the Romans and said, hey, you know what, there's a problem here. We should do something about this. He said, I realize that there's a problem. I realize that it happens a lot. It's not good. It's not healthy. It doesn't help our society. It's not just. We need to address it. Please, you her authority, please address this. And he could have gone around collecting signatures in his spare time because he thought God had called him to that in submission and in prayer. The, the third thing he could have done is what he actually did do in this case. He could have known that there was a systemic problem on the road to Jericho and be ready to help and not cross the other side of the road, to respond with the resources he had when confronted by the need that was in front of him. Now, three, two, one. Professional engagement. Two, part-time active engagement. Three, when we encounter it in the way we do our business and our life, when it falls out in front of us, addressing it. All valid responses. And we need to accept the fact that whether he wrote to a Roman senator, whether he protested, whether he took up a professional calling, or whether he was just prepared to help when he came across it, whichever camp we find ourselves in, we need to be unified and respectful of each other's choices here. But there is one option that Jesus rejects. Let me say that again. There is one option in this story which Jesus rejects, and that is crossing to the other side of the road, denying the problem, avoiding helping at all. So at this point, it's fair, there's a fair amount of despair, right? The problem is there, it's real, we're supposed to engage. How? How? That's partly what this six-week sermon series is about. Today is an introduction to that, but let me give you the first piece of that. And if you have the bulletin there, and I, this is in no way anyone else's fault but by my, my own, but the title of the sermon is In But Not Of, Being Color Aware and Not Colorblind. That was supposed to be being color aware and colorblind. So please cross the not out. Um, <laughs> we need to find a kingdom vision of race. Now, if you look at Galatians 3, you start to see that colored blind look. This is from Galatians 3 verses 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is uh, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And this is clearly saying that our primary identity needs to be found in Christ, that we are all children of God. This is a call to colored blind unity. But then we look at Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of the Lamb, for they were wearing white robes. 
and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud, loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the coming kingdom, all of these cultures, all of these ethnicities, all of these experiences are adding to. There's a celebration of diversity. So different identities under our identity in Christ. So we are supposed to both be color aware in one sense and color blind in another. In other words, <coughs> redeemed people are able to come together in unity and enter into different cultural stories. And this becomes really important to understand. We talk a lot in North Point, Paul alluded to it, and we certainly brought it up at Pentecost, that bringing all that diversity in creates a symphonic, full-color picture of God. By listening to the Gentile, the slave, and the woman, we have a fuller and more complete picture of God. Experiences shape our theology, experiences shape our understanding, experiences shape our knowledge in that biblical sense of who God is, our experiential understanding of who God is. And when we see that through the lens of people who have significantly different experiences, we are better off for it. I cannot tell you how much better I understand the Old Testament passage of the Exodus, having read black theologians who have written about that, especially the black theologians in, uh, in the early 1900s who were still dealing and were close to and had relatives uh, who experienced what it meant to be slavery. And anyone who's familiar with music understands the picture and the depth that comes from that experience. So we see a better picture of God, but just as experiences shape our view of God, we also, as children of God, called to care about justice, need to realize that our experiences shape our ability to see and understand injustice. We need to also develop a symphonic, full-color picture of the injustice and the brokenness that's in this world. We cannot avoid that. We cannot cross to the other side of the road. A lot of the anger, emotion, and feeling that's coming out in our culture today is coming out because black voices are saying, you aren't listening. You aren't listening. You can't hear us. And there really aren't enough black voices speaking into most of our lives. And we are not properly listening. Some of us have more experience of that than others. But we don't always want to hear it. But as children of God who are, cared, who are called to care about justice, we don't have a choice but to listen to those voices. We don't always want to hear it, but if we cross to the other side of the road, we are leaving Jesus on the side with the Good Samaritan. And that is not the place to be. So let's, as we walk through this series in humbleness, Holy Spirit humbleness, let's open ourselves up to what it means 
to hear voices that we are not used to hearing and work out how we need to respond to that in submission to Christ as children of God. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your kingdom is so beautifully diverse. And yet, in the now, that diverse has a lot of problems. Help us not to be blind to that any more than we are blind to the beauty of you that we see when we embrace that diversity. Help us to be Christians that really do love you, that identify with the Samaritan, that identify with you and your historical call, your mandate to justice. Help us to know how to engage in these topics as we talk to our friends, as we witness. Help us to bring a Christ-like, Christocentric understanding of race that isn't just a worldly response that can certainly tap into and react to our culture, but is not trapped in that, but can see this Revelation 7, this Galatians 3 understanding of who you are. Help us bring hope to this issue of race as we engage in it in our community and in our country. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.